Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Pat McDowell, and I'm happy to give you actionable ideas to elevate your current or perhaps your future nonprofit organization. Well, I had another fantastic conversation this episode with Mega Desai who brings a wonderfully fresh perspective to her nonprofit leadership of the Desai Foundation, which serves women and children in both India and in the United States. Now, quite honestly, this is not your classic nonprofit leadership discussion. And Mega takes pride in her corporate and marketing experience that sometimes clashes with traditional nonprofit management practices. Mega is going to help you rethink your approach to strategic planning, your commitment to those you serve, and maybe your relationship with your donors, including when is it time to push back. Lots of good content here. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation for sure. Check out the show notes. This is episode number 161. Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com and you'll find all of the resources Mega and I discuss, as well as more information on the great work she's doing through the Desai Foundation. Speaking of resources, while you're on our website, make sure you connect with us. We're on all the primary social media platforms, including YouTube, if that's how you like to consume your podcast content. And get on our email list. Go to the bottom of the homepage. It's labeled free resources, and you won't miss anything, including great episodes like this every Thursday morning. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Mega Desai. Mega, thank you for joining me on the path. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm so excited to be here. Well, I've enjoyed getting to know you a little bit through our preliminary conversations, and you've got some fascinating takes on nonprofit leadership, but frankly, leadership in general. And that's exactly Mm -hmm. what I want to talk about and what I I know our listeners will benefit from, you know, one thing that you talked about previously that really struck me was how you've noticed the challenge many nonprofits have in measuring their own success. Talk about that. Why is that a challenge or where have you seen that uh, as a challenge for other nonprofit organizations? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the reason why this was so front of mind for me as I entered into this industry uh, was because I came from the for-profit sector. You know, I I went from working in advertising where my metrics for success were really clear. Uh, you know, if the ad was working, I was selling more product or right. our brand awareness was going up. Um, that's from a kind of work perspective. From a personal perspective, you know, you are rewarded with promotions and with financial awards and maybe depending on your industry, even business accolades. And in my advertising business, I was there for, you know, some 12, 15 years and I was getting all those check marks and all those validations. So I was able to say, okay, this is working success. Right. And um, when I shifted to the nonprofit world, I realized that those measuring sticks didn't really apply. But what was strange was that the conversations I was having with donors, uh, whether they be corporate or individual donors or even institutional donors, they were still having conversations that sounded a lot like the conversations I was having in advertising. Yeah, good point. And, and those two things just weren't 
matching up for me. You know, I just, I was having a, a really, I kept getting whiplash. I was like, wait, but you're talking about this thing over here, but what we're telling you is what we're experiencing over here. And so I, um, I started to take a really hard look at what success meant. And so one of the aspects of our work at work at the Desai Foundation is, you know, we do uh, a lot of vocational training for women in rural communities. And so I thought to myself, okay, success means, you know, the whole point of a livelihood program is to make sure that they are employable and that there's money in their pocket. So for me, success is going to be Delta, their uh, income, right? right? From, from right. when they start working with me till after working with me, are they, is there Delta of income going up and that's success. And the donors really liked that because they were like, okay, that, that seems to make sense. But then I started to talk to the people that I work with and the people I serve. Yeah. <clears throat> and I recognized that that wasn't actually what was success for them. Interesting. And so suddenly I was being forced to really look hard and long at the work we were doing and say, oh, wait, she's taking this sewing class so that she can start her own business. This other lady is taking the sewing class so that she can work in a local factory. But this other lady is taking the sewing class so that she can get away from her mother-in-law for three hours a day. <laughs> right. And the honest truth is all three of those are valid and successful reasons for taking this class. And so am I going to then look at the women who maybe live too far from the factory, but then start kind of micro businesses or these women that really actually took the class simply to become better seamstresses because it was something they did at home all the time and they just wanted to be better at it. That's not necessarily money in their pockets, right? right? But that's dignity in their souls. And so I was success like, in other ways, right? I mean success that, in yeah. other ways. And so it really forced me to stop and say, I think we're measuring things incorrectly. Yep. And as I looked around the landscape of the nonprofit space, you know, it's like, okay, it's not wells in the ground, right? It's how many people now have access to water. It's not just the number of hospitals or schools that go up. It's how many more people have access to healthcare and to education. Right. And what's been really nice, um, sorry for the slightly long-winded answer, but this no, is really good. important to me, um, is it's been so nice to hear like the Melinda Gates and the Darren Walkers of the world start vocalizing this. Um, I think in the last three, four years, there have been some op-eds by these heroes in our sector to really say, hold up. I think we as institutional donors have been asking too much of our, of our nonprofits. Um, now, I want to say with very vigorous clarity that I believe deeply in collecting data and I believe deeply in reporting data. Sure, I am not sure. for a second saying that that is not something that needs to be done. But what I'm saying is at the Desai Foundation, at least, we use the data to inform, to validate, not to inform. So I make decisions based on the people I serve and I use the data to validate yeah, well, rather well, than the other way around, which is a lot of people are using the data to validate um, I mean, they're using the data to decision make. Right, right. And that is, I think, where we end up making mistakes, you know, like continuing to fix a well in Afghanistan, which is, of course, a really famous story, uh, not knowing that the women in the village were breaking the well 
because they actually wanted to walk two miles to get water uh, so that they could be with their friends alone. And so good sense. Yeah. yeah. So I think that that's kind of the thing about kind of metrics. And so, you know, and then just a slightly additional thing is for the donors of the world, I mean, for the donor, for the donors of the world, speak to the nonprofits and understand how do you submit data? What is it that you guys are already creating? And I encourage nonprofit leaders to stand up for themselves. Yes. You know, yes. There, there was a moment in time that for one program, I had 12 different formats of reporting Good grief. that we were filling out, right? Because we had just like, multiple donors for this one program. You're responding to got, them though, right? Are you responding with ex- their, yeah. Exactly. I was, I was, we were like bending ourselves into a pretzel, providing yep. the data that they required. And so I finally, I was like, this is madness. So I sat down, took all of the different uh, surveys and created one document. And I basically wrote a very stern letter to all of them. And I was like, you guys are getting it now in this format. This so that is we what only you're going to get. It once. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. Right. And only one of them had an issue with it. And um, but so I was like, fine, now we're doing two. But that's better than 12. Good for you. So yeah, so sorry for the very no, long, no. Exactly, exactly. Long-winded answer. But metrics for me is something that really gets me going. Great starting point, and I want to unpack it further, but you yeah. beautifully described an issue. And again, I think a lot of leaders are listening, hearing that, yeah, I'm, I'm a pretzel like Mega you just described. I feel <laughs> that, and why not push back? Um, before we get into the unpacking, though, uh, for our listeners who don't know, talk about, you touched on it, what is the Desai Foundation? Talk about your mission yeah. and what you're doing all over the world. Absolutely. Um, the the Sci Foundation is a women's empowerment organization that focuses uh, on women and children through community programming to elevate health and livelihood, as well as menstrual health programming. We work in eight states in rural India, as well as Massachusetts and uh, Harlem and kind of Morningside Heights, Washington Heights area in New York. Um, so it is a grassroots nonprofit that has built really scalable programming yep. um, to create effective change. So we we touch about 3 million lives a year and uh, really focus on cultivating dignity so that people can dream beyond their circumstances. Yeah, love that. And, and I've been impressed what I have read. And of course, I'm going to encourage our listeners, they're going to learn more by listening to this and going to your website and other things we'll talk about. Uh, I'm struck by the obvious cultural differences you must be working across and skillfully at that from U.S. as well as India. But talk about the challenges, I guess, of working across cultures or is what you do, you know, does it transfer regardless of where you're serving folks? Absolutely. Uh, You know, I think it's interesting. Uh, People for sometimes often forget how diverse India in and of itself is. (laughs) Right. And so... I actually have, I spent more time managing the cultural differences from state to state than I do from country to country. Uh, <clears throat> so that's actually been kind of a funny, eye-opening thing. Right. Is, you know, in there are states in the South of India that are more matriarchal than patriarchal, but yet the kind of systems in place don't allow women to thrive. So we're kind of, we're not necessarily down there changing hearts and minds the way that we're doing up North. Uh, we're simply providing them access, right? right so actually, right. the speed at which our programming has grown in a place like Tamil Nadu is quite 
quite faster than it has grown in a place like Rajasthan, where we've actually even been for longer. And that's really because of the cultural attitudes and difference. So I think that kind of goes across uh, country to country, state to state, and region to region as every nonprofit operates in different places. And again, it really just goes back to listening to the people that you serve. Yeah, good um, point. You know, in there's one state that we work in where there are hospitals everywhere. So our we have to we lean we lean back a little bit from our live our health access because it's it's already there. Um, but there's another state in which we have to lean really hard into our health access because right. the, the the rural the rural communities just don't have access to healthcare. So um, I love the challenge of learning something in India and then trying to bring it back to the United States and vice versa. Um, We have a great example of this. Uh, One is uh, we've been working with an organization called Community Impact in um, Morningside Heights in Harlem for almost 25 years. Okay. And they have, they were an established NGO that we partnered with and we helped kind of dig in and, and improve some of their, um, their community-based programming. We learned so much about how they engaged the community and how they fostered leadership from the students at the university. Right. That we were able to go to IIT, go all the way across the world to another college um, and say, we want to bring this type of programming that engages your student volunteers, which culturally is very different in India. In, in India, students don't volunteer because right. their job is to just put their heads down and study. And so at first, you know, we had a hard time getting it off the ground, but it's been now, what, I think nine, eight years, eight years uh, that we've been building this program at IIT. And it's been so lovely to watch these students, you know, host huge mega health camps and teach Fantastic. vocational skills and whatever. So that's an example of a program that went from, of, you know, west to east. Um, but some of the programs that we're doing in India, we're also bringing here. You know, people think that that the the stigma around periods is really only in third world or developing world countries, but that's so not the case. One in five girls in America drops out of sports at the onset of puberty. Um, There is a a horrifying statistic that says one in four women at some point in their life will face some sort of period poverty, which means they aren't able to purchase the pads or the tampons or the cups or whatever it is that they use to manage their periods um, or go to the, or afford the doctor's appointments that they need if they have endometriosis or something like that. Um, And that to me is like horrifying. And then even more horrifying is that in most states in America, people who bleed that are incarcerated have to pay for the products that manage their menstruation. Good grief. And, uh, you know, this is a thing that nobody knows because like, why would this is not going to be headline news? Um, But slowly but surely, just over the last four years. So I just want to be clear that it's only in the last four years that 20 some odd states have have rolled back this financial burden. Um, so if you don't have somebody putting money in the commissary, you literally are using socks and pillowcases to manage uh, your period. You're out of luck, right? Yeah. Right. So well, so we, so that's a, an example of a program that you know we've spent a decade in India working in menstrual health. Over the last six years, we've actually been doing lots of campaigns from an awareness perspective to make sure that people know these things um, so that they can change them. 
you just have to raise awareness, right? Just to mm-hmm. simply get people to pay attention. And I want to go back to your other point, just how well you listen to those you serve, which again, maybe seems fundamental, but I would suggest many of our nonprofit colleagues, um, you know, it's top down as to what mm-hmm. we do programmatically. And you have used the unique, different cross-cultural communities you serve, listened, and then applied them across borders, literally, mm-hmm. right? And that strikes me as impressive. Um, It leads, however, to another question. You were on an impressive trajectory in the advertising world. Why are you doing nonprofit leadership now? Yeah. Um, Life is funny sometimes. And I think that that you end up um, surprising yourself where you find yourself. Um, So you are right. I was quite successful in the advertising world. And you know, getting all those check marks and those accolades. Um, I think by the end of my tenure, I had racked up like five lions, can lions, like several pencils, a couple of Jay Shide awards, which are which wow. are like like if you don't know the industry, then it means nothing. But if you those know are the a industry, big deal, like, oh. <laughs> it's a big deal, right? And um, and again, these aren't singularly mine. In advertising, a team wins an award. Um, so like it's it's the it's the it's the ad that wins the award, not the person. So just to be clear about that, right, right, right. Um, I'm not saying that like I have won those. So this is not everybody's experience, but for whatever reason, uh, in the kind of early knots, uh, my experience was that every time I got a promotion or anytime someone was trying to reward me by putting me on a bigger PNL, um, or, or, or a sexier brand, right. I had this very strange thing happening where technically I was supposed to be like elevating, but the products that I was being put on somehow became more and more frivolous. And I remember I was, I think it was one of those weeks where I had, I had to have been at the office for 90 hours. And I think it was like, you know, 10 PM on a Friday. And I'm sitting in front of like a row of these deodorants (laughs) And I'm just thinking to myself, you've just spent 90 hours of your week missing your best friend's birthday party, and you are selling deodorant. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that deodorant's not important. I'm not saying people that sell and make uh, and stock the shelves with deodorant is not important. Yeah, yeah. It just wasn't important for me. Right. And I kept saying like, whew, this feels strange. And then the funny part is I expressed that they gave me a promotion and then I got put on a beer and I was like, this is even less <laughs> important to me. Oh, um, my. And, you know, it was a big name beer, but still yeah, I was like, sure. this is, this is, is this way what less. my life is like, about now. Exactly. Right? Yeah. I was like, even the deodorant is better than the beer. So, um, I left advertising um, feeling just a little bit like if I'm going to work this hard, I really want to care about the product I'm selling. Good for you. And so I spent five years running a small marketing agency where we focused on kind of branded entertainment and, um, you know, partnerships as well as kind of brand identity for startups. But I tried to incorporate lots of companies that were in social good. Yeah, And this was before kind of social good was super sexy. Um, and so I, I was actually bringing the idea to some of my existing clients. I had a really large computer company um, that I said to them like, hey, did you guys know that you actually reduced your paper consumption uh, in the last year by 33%? 
And they're they like, didn't yeah, even know that, or they did well, know that. They or? they did know that, but not every employee at the company knew okay. that, right? It was like yeah. just a small. And I was like, this is something to be celebrated. This is a big right. deal. And so, like you know, we we worked together with them to come up with some ideas on how to celebrate that and how to do a brand integration around that. Um, we had um, a teeny tiny little startup called Spotify <laughs> that was just kind of figuring itself out and it's uh, putting um, on the ground in the U.S. And uh, I had a great client that I worked with on my best with my best friend on uh, and called One.org. Her name is Raina Kumra. And we, you know, one.org came to us and said, listen, we don't need to fundraise. We don't need to do this. What we need to do is try to figure out how to shift people's perceptions of Africa. And so we came to, uh, we came up with all these different partnership ideas. And one of them was to create a branded channel, you know, featuring the hottest music out of Africa, curated by Bono himself. And it worked and they, they said yes. And we actually were, because both companies were kind of in these nascent stages, we actually were able to do this whole deal for almost free. I mean, I think it costed us, it was like a very negligible amount of money. Wow. And, uh, and that channel still exists today, you know? So um, that was the type of partnerships that I was, I was working on at the same time. Um, the Desai foundation was in a really interesting place. So it was started by my parents 25 years ago and operated very much like a family foundation for the first 10 years. After the kind of, you know, forgive the startup metaphor here, but the, you know, we were kind of in our friends and family round. Right, exactly. Our MVP. And then once we built our MVP, we ended up, we had, we realized we had 10 MVPs. We realized that in order to really expand the work, we had to scale these MVPs and make right, sure that we right. were inviting more people to the table. So we made the very unusual decision to convert from a family foundation to a public 501c3 programmatic nonprofit. Now, for those of you that are listening that are thinking about doing this, <laughs> please yeah. don't. You have some advice um, for them? <laughs> it was the wrong decision. We should have just shut down the nonprofit family foundation and started a new one. Interesting. We've had... The, pa- the paperwork was painful. It took us four years to get all the paperwork straight. Um, and then we had the added headache of people not understanding that we were a programmatic organization. We should have changed the name. We were going to change it to like the Lotus Institute or something, but we never ended up doing that. Right. And right. so, um, you know, people still come to us asking us for funding because we are called a foundation. Right. I get it. I deeply understand why people are coming to us and asking that. So it's been my marketing challenge to try to. Sh- change people's perceptions right which is uh you know uneasy but it's not easy but we uh we hope we hoped we hope we've gotten somewhere but just advice for folks that are thinking about making that conversion just shut down your nonprofit and start a new one right 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 um so here we are now a public organization with a board of directors and we were looking for an executive director and we started interviewing folks and Everyone that came to us with a lot of nonprofit experience didn't quite get our uh, act fast and break stuff attitude that we have um, as kind of two entrepreneurial founders of this organization. And uh, they really wanted to sit and study things for two years before they tackled things. And (laughs) um, 
That's not and, your kind of timeline, I'm guessing, or is it? It's, it's not only our timeline, but my entire board of directors and myself and my father um, really like to kind of build the plane and fly it at the same time. Right. We're also not afraid of failing at all. Um, we've had many failures at the Desire Foundation, and we learn from every single one of them. Where I think it's harder to sit behind books and studies and surveys and learn for years and years and years before you take action, because ultimately the answers are with the people you serve. Yeah. And so they're going to tell you if you're screwing up, as long as you're listening hard enough. And uh, so we just weren't finding that candidate that kind of got that. So we started looking at the public, like the pri- the private sector. Right. And of course, we couldn't afford any of those folks. So. We said, okay, I'll do this job for six months as, you know, a temporary ED to kind interim, of give us a, kind of an interim appointment. Yeah, maybe. just yeah. interim appointment. <laughs> I'll, put, I'll put a pin in my business for a year or yeah. six months to just kind of um, give us some runway. Um, that was six and a half years ago. And yes. um, I've now been running this business for six years. It's the hardest job I've ever had. It's the best job I've ever had. You believe in it though, obviously, right? It's something you I, can believe in so believe in. Um, and, you know, kind of going back to my, you know, this idea of like building things and breaking stuff. I think the other side of that is not knowing how hard some things are because I don't have all that institutional knowledge. Right. So I, I make this joke a lot that like 75% of the, of the time my naivete works in my favor and 25 percent you know we screw up so what i'll take that percentage any day of the week you'll fix and, it too right? <clears throat> and we'll yeah. fix it exactly um so sometimes we're able to be super ambitious and build things because i almost don't know how hard they are and uh it ends up being uh you know why people are starting to pay attention to the work we're doing so i was fascinated by it because you you made a comment earlier um in our conversation about i think sometimes the nonprofit community entangles itself in reports and analysis and clearly you come from, you know, a, a experience that you don't have time for that. So uh, I, I'm guessing that then becomes a key piece of advice to nonprofit leaders, right? That are you spending too much time or accelerate? Um, uh, tell me how you would translate that into advice. Do you, do you think strategic planning takes too long in the nonprofit <clears throat> sector, among other things? Or what are, what are some of the examples you see and that you would fix? Oh, so many. Um, first, it's really about approach and philosophy, right? The If you look at a, someone building a startup, they're able to, you know, raise $100 million, lose it all over the course of three years, and they get a pat on the back for trying to build something great. And nobody is scrutinizing their every dollar and cent. Yeah, right. But you know, I raised $50,000 from three different donors and I'm putting together these like eons of reports and somehow I'm not able to fail when I'm trying to change people's lives. And I think what happens is that we get so bogged down in <clears throat> legalese and in uh, this, this fear of failure. Yep, yep. It also depends on who your donors are, right? For those of you that are building nonprofits where your expectation is to get money from the government, I'm sorry, you're going to have to spend hours and hours and hours doing strategic planning, doing tons of testing, because most people won't even pay attention to you if you don't have the, you know, the reams of 
of data to, to, to prove your efficacy. Yep. And I get that. And I yep. think that I understand why governments have to hedge their bets a little bit more. But I don't see why CSR and institutional donors and especially individual donors have to, you know, hedge their bets. This is what, if you, if you trust an organization, write a check, give them a little bit of direction and then see what they're made of. And if you don't trust them, then don't write them the check. Um, And I think that, you know, I, we treat our annual review, um, like our annual report very much as an investor guide. So in it, you'll see like, oh, we tried this. It didn't work. (laughs) We did this. Um, you know, we, we were hoping to get further in this state than we did, because if you're not failing, that means you're not trying anything new. That's a great point. And, and I think so many listeners, Mega, they, they, they defer so much to their donors that they don't give their donors any credit for being thoughtful and good <laughs> investors, to use your term, right? And why don't Absolutely. we just say, hey, this is what we try, but I... I'm convinced, and I hear it a lot amongst other nonprofit leaders. Well, yeah, I wanted to try that, but they they almost just give up because they feel like they are beholden to the donors and can't try. But clearly, you have pushed back to donors, and, and we have it, it paid off, right? Yeah, I mean, we have a donor. Um, I'm obviously not going to name names here, but um, <laughs> we have a donor that has been wanting to write us a very large check for a very long time. Yeah, and they say that, okay, in addition to the suite of vocational training programs that we would, we would cover, you know, we insist that you teach English. Hmm. And I basically said, no, like, we're not going to take your money if you insist that we have to speak English because the people in these rural communities, English isn't going to change their lives. Yeah. What's going to change their lives is having dignity in their hearts, money in their pockets and food in their bellies. That's what changes their lives. And it, it, it's it's a really great example of the donor not understanding what's happening on the ground. Yeah, and, and sadly, too many nonprofit leaders, I think, would cave into that, in essence, allow mission creep to occur because we need the money. Yep. And you, and, in fact, push back. We push back. We are very, very... Um, uh, focused <laughs> on, 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 on what our mission is, but that doesn't mean that we don't listen to good ideas. So right, I'll give right, you a great right. example. We had another donor that said, Hey, listen, you know, um, we're doing a ton of work for the women in these communities organizations. Sure, so that's sure. our primary work. Um, but they said, you know, would you guys be willing to help us coordinate some like electrician classes and some plumbing classes for some of the men in the community. Yeah. And we were like, huh, that's interesting. And so we took a look at the community. we talked to some of the folks on the ground and we realized that there were enough people in that community that actually that was a really good idea. And it was a really good idea because it also benefited the women. Right. So if their men were at a class and suddenly the men's dignity has been, had been elevated because they were now suddenly earning money. The women actually, you know, were being uh, abused less or good for the whole family. Isn't it? Yeah. Good for the whole family. So we were like, okay, this is great. So sometimes you can listen to these, you know, uh, I like your phrase here of mission creep, um, <laughs> right, but right. like, so, so sometimes there is an, there's an appropriate time and place for that where it makes sense as long as it's serving the people, not you. 
Yeah, well put. That seems more strategic, right? And and an appropriate. You had the infrastructure; it benefited your ultimate mission of the women you serve. That's a win-win, and and makes great sense. And something else I want to make sure, Meg, I get to because you were adamant uh, and an advocate for the dignity of the women you serve. And and it seems to me you see a lot of exploitation. Is that maybe the right word? Where we kind of lift up the tragedy of the people we serve to, you know, generate the pity oriented funding. So, but yeah. don't let me put words in your mouth. Tell me, is that what you've seen? And obviously you're trying to address it. Yeah. I think there are two sides of that coin, right? So one, it is definitely about the way that nonprofits go about marketing their work and um, my absolute horror when I see poverty porn and yep. let's be sure that it is poverty porn. It is nothing else. Um, I really just don't think that showing people at their worst makes other people be, be their best. Yeah. And, yep. um, I think that for us at the Desai foundation, there is never a single image that comes out of our organization that makes the people we serve look anything other than beautiful, wonderful, worthy, and dignified. Right. And it is for us deeply important that people see them that way. And sorry, I got like kind of just choked up there. It's really important that people see them that way. So that's one side is how we're marketing. Yep. The second thing is, again, kind of goes back to my, my measurement philosophy, right? Um, going back to that example of the, the women taking the sewing class, you know, that woman who um, was taking the class just to get away from her mother-in-law for a couple hours. Right. It, if this class is providing her with that peace and that dignity, that's some sort of a currency. And I use the word currency kind of in it with a little bit of a hesitation and an asterisk because I am not a statistician or an econometrics. Like I don't have econometrics that I can whip up together some sort of dignity quotient. Right. Um, but somebody that's much smarter than me should, because <laughs> I would love to understand why dignity isn't really a factor. In fact, did you know that in the UN, the two major UN guide statistics, the I think it's like the happiness and the um, and the livelihood um, metrics, the the word dignity is not mentioned anywhere in those, or even the idea of dignity is not really? mentioned anywhere, except for um, when it comes to dying, the dignity of dying. So I was like, well, let's let's try to focus on the dignity of the living in, in <laughs> yeah, addition. That'd be a good and, start. And so, um, you know, for us, dignity is such an important component of of the work we do because we really believe that you can't dream beyond your circumstances if you don't have that personal that that personal will um you know dignity is and again I'm going to use this word currency again um I, I just think it's this abundant currency that I can't give you dignity but I can help you earn it right. I can't take your dignity but I can diminish it um and it's it's just about the the way that we see people and the way that they feel seen and they see the world. It's something we can give away for free. It's something that we can build our programs with dignity in mind. And it's just, it's something that seems so fundamental and simple to me. Yet 
if your metrics are about the number of wells, you are not going to think about that. The, exactly. You're not going to be thinking about the dignity of the women who have access to the water. So, uh, you know, that's my little soapbox that I often stand on. <laughs> it's a, it's a good one an appropriate one. And it has my wheels turning in terms of coming full circle in our conversation. You know, if I'm a nonprofit leader, perhaps I need to go do an audit for lack of a better term of how, my organization is is perceived or communicated, marketed, right? Because again, I think too often we're you're right. We're talking about the wells. Um, it's the output, but perhaps not the outcomes. Is that maybe a good way to say That's exactly it? Exactly right. That's exactly right. Yep. Any other advice, <clears throat> Vega? Because again, you're going to get people's wheels turning. It's exactly why I'm glad to have you on the podcast. But. Uh, and and by the way, I think there are a lot of our, our colleagues in the for-profit sector. Obviously, the pandemic has a lot of people thinking about the meaning of their professional track. Um, mm-hmm. Any other advice you'd offer someone that, you know, like you at that time is maybe pondering nonprofit leadership? What would you tell them? So two bits. One is something that my father has been saying my whole life is um, give early, give often, give more than your money. Um, and it's kind of this idea that this engagement with the social sector and the engagement with giving and with connecting to others should start, should, should be a lifelong journey. It shouldn't be something that you, you know, oh, I'll help people once I've made money. Uh, right, right. It, it really should be a lifelong journey and can crescendo and grow as much as you want. Um, we all have so many other skills that we can lend to nonprofits uh, beyond our money uh, or even our leadership. So I think that there's opportunity there. So that's one of my just kind of life philosophies. Nice. Um, my second piece of advice is, you know, I think that w- something that we do at the Desai Foundation very like often is we, we get together and we become like the most ruthless editors of our own organization. And what we do is we go through and just say, okay, did this deviate from our mission and goal? Did this buy it? Because it happened. It's just right. natural over the course of a year or six months or whatever for you to end up kind of, I like that phrase that you use, mission creep uh, yeah, right, into, right. into like different areas, whether it is uh, internally, whether it is externally, whether it's on the fundraising side, whether it's on the programmatic side. And so when I was in India, I was just like ruthless with my team sitting and they were all presenting all these different programs. And I was like, nope, cut, cut, cut. Yeah. And, and it was simply because we wanted to make sure that what we're doing, we're really doing well. Um, that would not was not more evident to me than at the peak of the pandemic in India. And at the peak of the pandemic in India in 2021 in the summer, spring, so many nonprofits were suddenly realizing, oh, oxygen's an issue. So suddenly they all became logistics masters overnight and we're trying to get oxygen from point A to point B. And we were like sitting here kind of watching all these NGOs totally change who they were and what they were trying to accomplish. And we were like, that's, that's peculiar. I know that they don't know how to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, and, you know, then people were scratching their heads, looking at us saying, how did this organization triple in size over the course of the pandemic? And I'm like, well, it's because we leaned into what we were actually good at and listened to the people we serve. Um, so that's basically it. You know, know, know what you're good at, 
stick to it and listen, listen, listen. Great advice, both your dad's and yours. The combination clearly makes the Desai Foundation strong and uh, delighted to get the words of wisdom you have given throughout this episode. And Meg, of course, you knew this was coming, but one more parting gift I'm going to ask of you is a book. And I know you encourage your whole team to, to utilize resources of all types. So maybe you can give me a book or two that you would recommend. Absolutely. Yeah. The first, anyone, uh, any team members first day, they get a big long list from me of things they should be listening to, reading, uh, watching, and 90% of them are not nonprofit focused. They're business focused because our philosophy really is to build like a business. Um, And I I know it's kind of cliche, but I love this book. Um, I love good to great. Um, And I think the reason why it's just by Jim, by Jim Collins, um, the reason I think it's so, so, so vitally important for those of us in the nonprofit sector is we often let great be the enemy of good. Yes, yes. And so sometimes I like reading this book for the reverse lesson is, you know, but starting with good is good. And then getting to great can take time. But if you wait to get to great, if you wait to start with great, where do you have to go? And, uh, and I love the kind of lessons uh, that this book has to offer because it really helps you think about what are the things that are holding me back from even just taking the first step. So well put. And I love the fact that you present that kind of my first day on the job you're providing me resources. I think every nonprofit leader listening ought to think about it. What do you do as part of your onboarding? Because it sets the tone, it provides information, it creates a culture, doesn't it, Mega, Mm -hmm. that you you are uh, kind of articulating, hey, this is the kind of information I want all of us to, to know and learn. So I love that. And of course, thank you for all the words of wisdom throughout this conversation. Where can people go to find out more about you and the, the great work you're doing? Oh, I so appreciate that. Yeah, so we are um, the Desai Foundation, D-E-S-A-I.org uh, um, on the website. That's our website. And then we have, um, we're at Desai Foundation uh, on all the socials. We have two beautiful events. If you live in New York, come to the Valley on the Hudson in October and to the Lotus Festival in September. Um, we host those every year. Um, and the Lotus Festival takes place in Boston. And so, yeah, we'd love to connect with you and learn more about what you guys are up to. And you can reach me personally uh, at Megatron, M-E-G-H-A-T-R-O-N-5. <laughs> love it. We'll get it all in the show notes. And of course, I, as always, we'll encourage our listeners to check it all out. We'll link it up. And Mega, thank you again for joining me on the path. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate what you do here. And uh, I really appreciate being uh, a part of it. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Mega as much as I did and came away with some new ideas to guide your professional development journey or maybe help you manage your nonprofit in a different way. Don't forget about the show notes. They are available on our website, patentmcdowell.com. This is episode number 161. You can find out more about Mega, the Desai Foundation, and the great work they're doing around the world. As always, thanks for sharing this episode with just one other person on the path. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to this podcast. Again, go to patentmcdowell.com and you'll see the follow button. Follow equals subscribe. And you won't miss out on any of our weekly episodes coming out every Thursday. 
Of course, if you like this episode, click on the episodes button. It's at the top of the podcast page. You can scroll through thumbnails of every one of our podcast episodes. Thanks, as always, for what you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week. I'll see you next time on The Path.